You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Worldview and Christian view are in opposition to one another. The gift of God's vision is unique, unconditional, and unparalleled by the world. Turn with us to Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 33, as the pastor delivers the sermon, Perfect Vision. All right, so Mark chapter 8, and we'll begin our reading in verse number 22 this morning. So before we read our text, you know, I was thinking about our topic for today, which is perfect vision. So I ask you the question, what is perfect vision? If someone was talking about eyesight and they said, what is perfect vision? I bet I know what you would say. Perfect vision is what? Oh, we think it's 2020, but you know, actually 2020 is just the average so it's actually not perfect vision at 2020. It's just the average of what people have. And so especially younger people, children, they might have better than 2020 vision. They may have better than what is the normal or the average. But in this new year that we're just now into, 2023, in case you're still writing it wrong on your checks, or you probably don't even write checks anymore in this day and age, right? No one actually physically writes anything anymore. But we talk about things like vision, a vision for the new year, a vision for our business, a vision for our home, a vision for our life. Well, what is that vision that we're talking about? Really, that vision that we're referring to there is is imagining something that's not yet. It's something that we can't actually see right now, but we visualize it and we see it out there somewhere in the future. And we might even use a term like insight to refer to our understanding of something. We might ask someone, do you see what I'm saying? Or we might say something like, I'll look into the matter. We use all these terms related to vision, right? Or eyesight, whether it's something we physically see with our eyes or not. But we understand what that term means, right? We understand our eyesight or our vision, looking into things, seeing things, understanding things. So in our text today, we're going to see a man who gains his sight, and we'll see some disciples who were still getting theirs, and then we're going to examine our own vision through this text. So the book of Mark, chapter number 8, look with me beginning in verse number 22. It says, And he cometh to Bethsaida... And they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. He looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? 
And they answered, John the Baptist, and but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them and the son of man, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, in our last message from the book of Mark, we centered around this question of, Do you not understand? Do you not understand? And this theme continues on today as we deal with this issue of eyesight or vision or understanding. Jesus' disciples, you'll remember, had taken no bread into the boat. This was on the heels of just watching Jesus feed a multitude once again with very little. This was a second occasion where they had seen that. And immediately they leave that place of that miracle and Jesus Uh, making that supply and as they get into the boat they had forgotten to take bread and so Jesus begins to speak to his disciples uh, about a lesson they needed to know about the Pharisees and the Herodians and the danger they presented Jesus used an illustration of these guys and the illustration was that of leaven and when the disciples heard this illustration of leaven immediately they realized wait a minute we didn't take provisions in the boat we didn't bring any bread he's rebuking us for this and they begin to get all upset and worried and Jesus asked them that question do you not understand they were missing the point of the lesson he was trying to give them about the Pharisees and Herodians but they were also missing the point of who he was If they had gotten the point of the miracle, if they had gotten the point of his feeding not only the 5,000, but also the 4,000, if they had gotten that point, they wouldn't be concerned that they only had a single loaf of bread in the boat because they knew the provision of the person, the all-sufficient Christ who was there with them. But they didn't have the vision. They didn't have the understanding. They didn't have the insight. They still were not clear about who Jesus was. So in our text today, we're going to, def- we're going to find here um, that Jesus is going to come to Bethsaida in verse 22. And they're going to bring a blind man to him. And, and they're going to ask him to touch him. Now, Jesus is going to give more than one type of vision in this passage today. So we're going to look at this perfect vision, which can only come from one place. It can only come from God. This is a God-given vision unlike any other. It's unique. And we'll see that from our text today. So notice, first of all, of this perfect vision, that God gives this vision uniquely. God gives it uniquely. In our story in verse 22, when Jesus comes to Bethsaida, they brought a blind man to him and besought him to touch him. Now, this was a unique instance here, first of all, because it was a unique place. 
We're told that Jesus came where? He came to Bethsaida. Now, why is that important? Because Jesus is going to heal one man out of a a deep, dark place, a place that had seen miracles, a place that had seen his power, and yet they reject Christ. We know this because we're told in Luke chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Jesus had already pronounced this condemnation upon Bethsaida because they had seen the miracles and yet they didn't believe. You remember there were times when Jesus would leave an area because they didn't believe and he wouldn't do mighty, many mighty miracles there. But at Bethsaida, he had done them and they had clearly the evidence before them. And yet they rejected the Messiah. They rejected Christ. But here was one individual, one unique person whom Christ does minister to, who he does touch, whom he does heal. All of Bethsaida wasn't healed. All of Bethsaida wasn't saved. All of Bethsaida didn't receive their sight, but one man did. And this was a unique instance, a unique place, but also a unique problem. What was the problem this man had? He was what? He was blind, right? Now, why is this unique? Well, because so far as we've been studying the life and ministry of Jesus, we've not seen an instance up to this point where Jesus heals a blind man. We're told where he he heals the deaf, the mute, the lame, but we haven't seen a blind person healed. And so this is the first occasion that's recorded of Jesus healing a man who is blind. Now we're going to see that he probably was not blind from his birth because when Jesus does this healing, and we'll talk about the, the uniqueness of this, but he says, I see men like trees walking around. How did he know that these men look like trees walking around? So probably there was some frame of reference there where he had had vision somewhere in the past, but he had lost it. So now he was blind. And so he, he began to immediately recognize these things that he was seeing. But he was in this unique place. He was had a unique problem. But then there was a unique progression to this healing. This healing does not happen like any of the other healings that we see in Scripture. In fact, everyone else in Scripture that we find Jesus healing, they're healed instantly. I mean, immediately they are healed. And that's not exactly the way it plays out with this guy. In fact, look at what happens in verse 23. We're told that he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Now, here is Jesus touching the man, but the man is not healed yet. And Jesus leads him out of the town, perhaps to get him away from the throng and away from the unbelievers. But his disciples obviously are going to see this and witness what takes place. He leads him out of town and says that when he had spit on his eyes... And put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. Now we might find this a little bit odd that Jesus uses the spittle in in this healing, but it would have been pretty common for someone to do such a thing in that time. And perhaps this was a sign to the the, uh, blind man that something was occurring, something was about to happen. He was doing something for him. And so Jesus spits on his eyes, puts his hands on him, asks him what he sees. 
And verse 24 says, he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. Well, obviously this was an improvement from his initial condition, right? He's not seeing clearly yet. He doesn't see perfectly, but he's seeing better. Now, the question might be asked, well, was Jesus having a little trouble here? I mean, could Jesus not heal him completely or, or, or was he struggling? Was his power a little bit off that day? What was going on? Obviously, Jesus was completely powerful to heal him instantaneously. He chose not to. Why did he do that? A lot of speculation about that, but we'll look at it. Look at verse number 25. It says, after that, he had put his hands again upon his eyes, he made him look up. And he was restored. By the way, what's that, that symbology whenever a person is looking up? Even Jesus, when he looks up and he prays, what is he doing? He's acknowledging his father, right? He's looking to the father and the source from where the help comes. The man looks up. And as he looks up, he was restored completely. In fact, look at how good his vision was now. And saw every man clearly. He has exceptional vision. Now, he goes from no vision, being blind, to some vision. I mean, he's not seeing clearly, but he can see. To now, everything is clear. The vision is perfect. Now, why did Jesus do this? It wasn't because of a lack of power, but likely because Jesus wanted to make a point. Now, there's a significance of what Jesus did in laying his hands on the man. He laid his hands on his eyes. He laid his hands on him again. When you look throughout the Old Testament and you see this idea of laying hands on someone, in the Old Testament, it was to consecrate something as special or to set it aside. Or perhaps it was to communicate a blessing. For example, a father might lay his hands upon a son and he would communicate a blessing to him. And so that was a purpose for the laying on of hands. But nowhere in the Old Testament do you ever find where the laying on of hands resulted in a healing. That was not the purpose of it. But in the New Testament, you still find this idea of laying on of hands for communicating blessing, for consecrating, setting apart. As, for example, when we ordain a person in the ministry and there's a laying on of hands, an acknowledgement of them and their work, and that communication of spiritual gifts we see that in the new testament but then we also see in the new testament this association with the laying on of hands and healing and it begins with christ who does just that but what point is he making to his disciples well again this is a lot of speculation but i think when we look at the context of what's happening remember the disciples still were not clear in their vision yet, were they? They still weren't clear in their understanding of Christ. In fact, he shows some frustration of that, but he mentions that not only do they not understand, but they don't understand yet. He acknowledges they will understand, they will see it clearly, even though they hadn't gotten it to this point. And so the disciples were still in this process of getting this clear vision of who Christ was. I mean, they had seen him feed the 5,000. They see him feed the 4,000. They've seen all the healings. They've seen all the evidence. They've seen all the signs. And they sort of are kind of beginning to get it, but they haven't quite gotten it. They don't have a clear vision just yet. And perhaps that's the point of Christ in this progressive um, 
deliverance or healing of this man. There was more yet to come for the disciples. They were going to get it. There was going to be a clear vision. This was just another step for them to see more clearly what they needed to see. But you know, this healing was unique in all of these ways because of the place and and the problem and the progression. But it was also unique because it was very personal as well. Everything about the story is very personal to this one individual, this one man who was blind. And everything about this story points to us individually as people as well. That God would know us individually before the foundation of the world. Isn't that an amazing fact? That God knew you, God had that plan for you from the very beginning, before the world ever began. He knew you. He chose you. It was uniquely personal. But look at also this unique proclamation in verse 26. So after Jesus heals him, it says, And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. Now, Jesus says, Don't go tell anybody what just happened to you. You say, Why does he do that? Why does he tell him not to go tell anyone? When you think you want the news out everywhere... We're going to see this was not God's timing yet. This was not God's mission and plan. There was more yet to come, and we'll see that as we go through our text. So this perfect vision, God gives it uniquely, as we see that in the illustration with this blind man. But God also gives it unconditionally. He gives it unconditionally. What had this blind man done to earn the favor of Jesus Christ? He had done absolutely nothing. And we see that reflected again in this next part of our text. Look with me beginning in verse 27. So Jesus went out and his disciples in the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples saying unto them, whom do men say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elias and others one the prophets. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto them, thou art the Christ. And he charged them they should tell no man of him, just as he had told the blind man. But I want you to see the parallels in these stories. Look at the parallel of how Jesus healed and gave sight to this blind man and what he's doing now with his disciples. He's giving them vision. He's giving them sight as well. Now, there's something Um, that we're going to see from Matthew that gives you a little bit more insight into this in just a moment. But look at what Jesus says. And this is an all-important question. He asked his disciples, whom do men say that I am? And he follows that up with a question in verse 29, but whom say ye that I am? This is an important question for all of us. Who do you say that Christ is? Who do you say that Jesus is? The world may say something very different from what we say about Christ. But think about these different perspectives. What's the common answer? What's the worldly answer? Verse 28, and they answered John the Baptist, but some say Elias and others one of the prophets. So there were a lot of theories about who Christ was and they were misguided theories. Some thought it was John the Baptist come back. Some thought it was 
Elijah. Others thought he was just one of the prophets that returned. But all of these were mistaken. All of them were wrong. They all missed the point. How many different views of Jesus are there in our world today? I mean, you hear everything under the sun about who Jesus is. Not everybody believes the same Jesus that you and I believe. You understand that, right? They say a lot of things about him that simply aren't true. Or say a lot of things about him that fall very short. Because the world does not understand him. They don't know him. They can read about him. They can understand historical facts about him. And they can make up their own ideas and decisions about him. But they do not know him. And so the world does not have a clear vision of Christ. Anything that they say of him is misguided and misses the point. He's not just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet. He was good. He was a prophet. But not just those things. He was so much more. So there's a common answer that's given in verse 28. But notice the unconditional grace found in verse 29. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? So we know what the world says about Christ. But what do we as his people say about Christ? And even beyond that, how do we know it? Look at Peter's answer to him. When Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter answers and says to him, thou art the Christ. This is an important statement because Peter is saying, I'm acknowledging you are the promised anointed one of God. Everyone else was rejecting that. No one else would accept that. But Peter says, you're the promised anointed one from God. You're the one that's been prophesied of from the beginning. You're the one who has come to save your people from your sin. That's what's acknowledged in this term Christ. It's recognizing him as the Messiah, the promised one of God come to save us from our sin. Where in the world did Peter come up with an answer like that? How did he get that insight when everybody else in the world was missing it? This is an important fact. And Matthew shows us why in his account. Mark doesn't include this particular detail. But look with me in the book of Matthew chapter number 16. Because I want you to see the same story from the account in Matthew. And I think it'll help you understand. Matthew chapter 16 And I'm going to go ahead and read beginning at verse 13, just so you can see his account of the entire story. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Then Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we see a little bit of an expansion on that answer. But again, it was the acknowledgement that he was Christ, the promised anointed one. But look at Jesus' response to him in verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Where did Peter get this insight? Nobody else in this world gave it to him. Nobody else in this world understood it. 
This insight came directly as a gift of God's grace. God granted him this sight, this understanding. And he tells him in verse 18, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charge his disciples, they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. So Jesus acknowledges that this statement that Peter is making is a statement that's come from God. And it's an all important confession upon which the church has been built. The foundation is this statement that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. R.C. Sproul said, the church stands strong and unconquerable as long as it remains committed to its confession that Jesus is the Christ. Why do we see such a failure in the church today? Because we've abandoned that particular part of our faith, the foundation of our faith, that confession that Jesus is the Christ. You understand that even our churches and our pulpits today are proclaiming a different Jesus. They're not proclaiming the Jesus of the Bible. They're not proclaiming the Jesus who is the Christ. They're proclaiming another Jesus. And we see the suffering of the church because of it. The church has not stood strong upon this truth. And then Jesus, back in our text again, he gives the same charge to his disciples that he had given to the blind man that he healed. Don't go tell anybody this. Blind man, don't tell anybody that I healed you. Disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. Why not? We're going to see that in the next section of scripture. This This type of understanding, though, that Peter displays when he says, you're the Christ. It's an understanding that could only come from God, not humanly possible. Because you see, if God does not open our eyes, we'll never see. The blind man can't open his own eyes. We can't open our own. If God doesn't do it, it won't be done. It was God who softened Peter's heart, caused him to see. What had Peter done to earn that? You know the answer, right? He hadn't done a thing. Solely by God's grace. He doesn't call any of us based on our own goodness or our own accomplishments. He calls us solely by his goodness and grace. So God gives this vision uniquely, and he gives it unconditionally. But finally, notice God gives it unparalleled. There's nothing like it in the world. There's nothing it can be compared to. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. There's nothing like this. 
in worldly understanding. This was so foreign. This vision of God, this understanding from him, is of a plan that's not a worldly plan. It's not like anything that anyone's ever experienced. In fact, Jesus came in a way that no one expected. Verse 31, Jesus is teaching them how he came. He says, the son of man must suffer many things. That's not what they were looking for in a Messiah. That's not what they were looking for in their king. One who would suffer in such a way. And Jesus tells them that he must be rejected of the elders, rejected of the chief priests and scribes. He must be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. This plan doesn't make any kind of earthly sense whatsoever. This is not what anybody was expecting. This is not what anybody was looking for. Nor is it what they wanted. Why? Because they didn't understand. If they knew what Christ was going to accomplish by doing these things, don't you think they would want it? But they didn't understand. And he spake that saying openly. Jesus had spoken in a lot of parables, hadn't he? A lot of things that he didn't clearly see or understand yet because he spoke in parables. But this, he was plain and he was open and he spoke it to them. He told them, I've got to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise after three days. They had been told, told this plainly with no questions. But that's not how they expected it. So what does Peter do in response in verse 32? And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Now, this is a strong word, actually, that Peter rebuked him. I mean, Peter is not only having some issue with what his teacher is telling him, but he's condemning his teacher. He's rebuking him strongly. He said, uh-uh, you're wrong on this one, Jesus. You missed this one. That's not how this is going to play out. It's not going to happen that way. You're not going to be killed like this. Not if I've got anything to do about it. And Peter absolutely rejected the message that Christ has just given him. This is the same one, by the way, who had been given this vision, who was beginning to see more clearly, who says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Yeah, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, but uh, you're wrong on this one. It's not going to happen that way. It's much like Satan's temptation of Christ in the wilderness. You see that in verse 33. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. You remember even Satan in his temptation had offered up the nations of the world. You know what Peter is saying in his rebuke? There's probably a lot of truth to it. No doubt they could have gotten together a throng of people. They could have gotten together an army. They could have protected Jesus. They could have fought for him. They could have worked to establish him as earthly king. And can you imagine if you're in that place in the flesh? That might be tempting, wouldn't it? Here's people who want to make me king. Here's people who will fight for me. They'll gather people around me. I'll have power. I'll have prestige. I'll have all of these things. And Christ says, that's just how the world thinks. 
He says, get behind me, Satan. That's just like the temptation of Satan. Isn't it interesting that Satan tempted Christ with the nations of the world and what Christ was about to do was about to to take control and become king of the nations of the world? He was about to defeat Satan upon that cross. He tells Peter, likens him to Satan, says, get behind me. Why? Why? Why such a strong rebuke from Jesus? He's telling him, you don't have that vision anymore. You're still cloudy. You savor not the things that be of God, but the things of men. You're looking at this through the world's eyes. You're not having the spiritual vision. You don't have an understanding from God. You're thinking like the people of this world think. So there's two distinctions here, isn't it? The way the world thinks and the way the people of God think. And they're not the same. I see this all the time with confusion. I I get these accusations all the time that I'm calling for something I'm not calling for, that I'm saying we're doing something we're not. You know why? Because they don't understand spiritual things. You could talk about the spiritual armor of God and somebody thinks you're out there trying to start a fight. See? Why? Because they think like the world thinks, not like God thinks. That's, That's the term Peter was thinking in, wasn't he? He was thinking of physically going to fight. And Jesus said, I don't want you to do that. Why? Because there's a bigger plan unfolding. There's something happening you don't get. There's something you don't see, Peter. I think about Elisha and his servant. You remember as they were surrounded by the the foreign enemy. And the servant begins to panic. And Elisha prays that that servant's eyes would be open. Because you remember Elisha told him, he said, those who be with us are more than are with them. And the servant looks around and he's like, I don't see it. I don't get it. We're surrounded by an enemy. And Elisha prays and the servant's eyes are open and he looks and he sees what he could not see before. And he sees the forces of God surrounding them. He realizes then that truly those who are with them are greater than those who are with their enemy. But it took an opening of the eyes, didn't it? To see it, to understand it. And may God grant us grace to help us see in this world with wisdom, with heavenly insight, to see the supernatural working and plan of God. Our limited vision frustrates us, doesn't it? Our limited vision often leads us to blaming God, questioning God, Maybe even rebuking God like Peter did sometimes. Because we're looking at it through the eyes of the flesh, aren't we? The eyes of the world. But God is not the problem. He's working His plan perfectly. The problem is we don't see it, right? May we have grace, though, to see. Pray that your eyes will be open. Maybe you find yourself in a place right now where you just you can't figure it out. You don't understand why you're going through it and you're tempted to question, rebuke, blame God. Pray that your eyes will be open. Again, the problem is not on his side, is it? The problem is in us and our flesh. Now, we're not going to have perfect vision in this life. But like the old song says, we're going to understand it better by and by, right? There'll come a day where we'll clearly understand it all. That's this process of sanctification 
that results in glorification. It's like the healing of the blind man in our text, isn't it? What is God doing in us as his people? He's he's growing us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. Are we there yet? Have we reached perfection yet? We haven't gotten there yet, but he's still building us up, isn't he? He's still growing us and making us into what we ought to be until one day he returns and he makes us completely whole and perfect. Then we'll understand. It's as Paul told us, now we see through a glass darkly. We don't have perfect vision yet. But then he says face to face. Isn't that going to be a glorious day? Right now it's still a little fuzzy, it's still a little cloudy, but one day we're going to see it perfectly and clearly and we'll understand it. That should excite us. That's a hallelujah moment right there, isn't it? When we see him face to face. So may God grant you grace today to see yourself first as a sinner and see God's provision for your sin. To see the one who suffered and died was resurrected. May God grant you the grace to see Jesus, the Christ, and that vision that only comes from him. Let's bow for prayer. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.